when it comes to heating up your business, it's all about making more bacon. And that requires an expert with a particular set of skills. You need a Baconologist. Building authentic connections, online networking, through social selling, relationship marketing, mindset and training. Yeah, that's bacon. Get ready, because we're about to fry up a sizzling success strategy. This is the Bacon Podcast with your host and business Baconologist, Brian Basilico. It's a lot of bees, man. Welcome, everybody. I'm your host, Brian Basilico, and this is the podcast where you learn to make your business sizzle online. So are you ready to fry up some new business? Hey, peeps, I have an incredible guest today. His name is David Nayer, and he is with Apex Collaboration. He's also an innovator and a heck of a mathematician. So, David, man, how are you doing? I'm doing great. It's awesome to have you on. So, today we're going to be talking about empathy and why it's important with your life and in business. But before we get started, I like to get my audience acclimated to who you are. So how did you go from being a juggling street performer to somebody who juggles innovation for companies? So uh, I would tell you, not a, not a simple story. It has a couple of different settings and circumstances. Um, mm-hmm. Even before I was a street performer, um, my father was a diplomat, so I lived in five different countries before I was six years old. Um, and I always had an interest in um, complicated things and difficult things. Juggling, I would tell you, is a way to make a living by demonstrating something that's extraordinarily difficult to do and, and is interesting as a result. Um, and I think innovation can be extraordinarily difficult and interesting to do. And, and, and if you can work out the pieces of it, there you there's a lot of value to be found so you know we were talking before about making things simple i would say embrace the complexity and then sort out the important pieces of it and and execute on those key important pieces so the the simplification is not a reduction so that you're guilty of reductionism and making things too easy but it it is concentration and focus around what's important but don't give up the complexity if you're going to make a living at juggling you actually have to be an interesting act um, and then, um, mm-hmm. you know, working on that methodically towards something that's productive. So if I was to ask you, when you talk about innovation, um, I was listening to this audiobook, and they talked about, you know, basically future in horizontal and um, perpendicular future or, you know, in, in horizontal or vertical. And they talked about the fact that horizontal is like incrementally better where, you know, vertical is more something where you have this world changing innovation. So define for me what innovation is in your world. Um, it's a great question. Um, so I'm going to, I'm going to morph innovation into a discussion of creativity mm-hmm. um, and then extend creativity into a couple of dimensions to turn it into innovation. First, what is creativity? Um, there was work in the 1990s and the 2000s um, in positive psychology, which looked not just what's wrong with people, what's abnormal, abnormal psychology, but what's really cool about human beings and celebrating the amazing gifts that human beings have to offer. So you, you had people looking at things like genius and creativity and invention and mindfulness and happiness. And there was this, this very interesting exploration into what, what made a human being. If you looked at creativity, there was a, 
there was a significant study, and I'm sorry that I don't pronounce his pretend I not don't necessarily pronounce his name correctly. It's Cicent Mihaili. It's it's a Hungarian name, um, and and I'll get you the spelling of it. But there's a a famous book he put together. There's two quite well known books. The first one was called Creativity, and the second one was called Flow. And he's responsible for this notion of psychological flow becoming popular for people understanding when they're in flow. The creativity side of it, he, he talked to 300 folks who were world famous and had made a real difference in their world. Um, and these are people like Oscar Peterson and um, I think Norman Mailer turned him down, but these were authors, uh, Nobel Prize winners, um, musicians, uh, politicians, folks who had done something new and that thing that they had done new made a difference in the world and had fundamentally changed in industry or, or something. Um, um, so you look at Oscar Peterson, I think he fundamentally changed the way music comes together. You know, um, I'm, I'm a fan of Peterson. I've, if you were in a recording studio, you would be too. Mm -hmm. So creativity is composed of two things, according to this definition, which I subscribe to. First, it has to be novel, something that nobody has done before, something that is an invention or unique. And second, it has to be useful. If it's completely novel and it's completely nonsense, and you know, there are people who, there's, there are interesting, I, there, I know there is a Japanese discipline of making crazy inventions that have absolutely no utility. Um, but I would tell you that is not creativity. Creativity is novel and new and useful. And if it's really useful, it's really creative. So it makes an impact. Mm -hmm. So, so so if somebody is creative, they're, you know, you, you put together an interesting podcast, but your podcast makes a difference to your audience and your audience grows and your audience learns from it. it makes it, you know, then I would tell you, you're doing new and creative work. People are going to track with it. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, how do you scale creativity into innovation? Um, I'm, I, I like to add in a couple of different pieces. So I want to make sure that the creative wor work has significance um, and I think that's the confluence of three different sources of capital, applying financial capital, applying human capital or human inventiveness, and then demonstrating that an invention intrinsically has utility. Um, so three different legs. So if I were an investor in an innovation fund, I would want to put money in to get new things invented. But I wouldn't know as an investor or even as an entrepreneur whether that thing I had made was useful or not until I had done an experiment in a marketplace and the marketplace had told me it was useful and there was interest in it. So this is the flip side of marketing. It's, it's the matching between supply and demand by actually showing there's demand for this thing you've made. Um, so what is innovation? It's, it's a new invention that makes a difference to the world and generates value. Mm -hmm. No, that's a great explanation. So what you got my mind on is one of my, you know, I think favorite people to revere, yet I know this person was gnarly, unempathetic, and uh, but a genius when it came to creativity and innovation. That was Steve Jobs. Yeah, I so, thought you were going to mention him. I, I, I got to meet him. Did you really? Okay. Um, so I, I, um, I did work as business development for Dell back in a period which overlapped. Um, mm -hmm. um, so um, his, so 
So that's that's a style of leadership where you're a visionary and you drive everybody in a particular direction. And that thing you see and the demand that you see that others haven't seen turns out to be right and makes a difference in the world. So I would tell you, yeah, Steve Jobs, definitely an innovator. He added a layer and a style of a proprietary invention that was closed and was a complete solution, um, which in its day for technology is, was, you know, novel and useful. Um, and it's a model that Apple is still doing. Um, mm -hmm. I, I tend to subscribe to a more open and collaborative marketplace, which means as I might not grow as an individual company like Apple as quickly, but I think I'm going to make more of a difference in the world if I get other partners and other, other companies on board, uh, with cooperation instead of just owning everything. Right. But he was, he was notorious as, and I don't know if you found this in your, no, I, I've talked not. to people and I've worked with people who literally worked with him and said, you know, um, explaining, explaining to Steve why it wouldn't work or why it was impossible was a really unpleasant job, particularly if you were <laughs> a chief technologist for him. Um, so the vision was there. It's not necessarily anchored in the achievable, but it drives people to do more than they thought they could do. Mm -hmm. So this is kind of like the coach that screams at you to press harder. Um, as long as you have the ability to recover from the effort and grow stronger, um, it, you know, it might encourage you, but that's not the kind of coaching I like also. Um, right. So, so it seemed like that he lacked the empathy. He lacked the ability to to get inside other people's heads to understand what it is. So let's kind of no, go I'm down not sure that, that road. That's, that's actually, that's, that's a very interesting segue. I am not sure that's true. Um, hmm. um, so let's, let's talk about my definition for empathy first. So one of the things about Steve Jobs that I've heard is the guy is an incredible innovator, but he could be kind of like a, you know, a tyrant at work. I mean, he was so driven and a lot of people felt like he was crushing them, like he didn't have empathy. Was that the case? Or, you know, first and foremost, I think we need to define what empathy in the case of innovation is and then kind of look at, you know, why it's important. And then, you know, what what is the outcome of having empathy? Because in his case, if he truly wasn't empathetic, it, it still worked, right? So it, it worked for creating things um, in in the spectrum of that thing being valuable. So it's, it's, a, it's a means to an end. It created ends. The question is whether it was complete or not. And I'm not sure. Um, so let's go, let's, and, I, and I, actually I want to expand the conversation. So if you have ty, ty, tyrants for bosses or authoritarian bosses, can they still be empathetic? And um, potentially they might be, but they're making, they're making a choice, not necessarily to regard uh, they may not be considerate, and there's a difference between empathetic and considerate. Um, so first, what is empathy? So I would define empathy as listening to understand. It's, or an, another way to say it, I, I, I'm of the Carl Rogers school. So Carl Rogers, for me, is one of the innovators in psychology who shifted from analytical models of psychological analysis into empathetic models and is famous for bringing... Um, um, listening and positive regard regard to his clients as a as the main um, driver of change with 
within the clients that he was seeing as a psychologist. So if I, I want to jump in real quick and just say I'm of the Fred Rogers school. No, so I'm, the I'm definitely of the Fred Rogers school. <laughs> so Fred Rogers is one of my heroes. Um, um, and, you know, if if you were to see me in person, you would see, uh, you know, not only do I like Fred Rogers, but I like playing with puppets as well and using puppets to communicate things. So we, we can go down that track in, in a different conversation. Um, I think for, for similar reasons, having people to understand you. So I find Fred Rogers is enormously empathetic and, a, um, and a, I think a, a proponent of empathy, just like Carl Rogers. He follows Carl Rogers. He's in the Rogerian tradition. Um, so this is, so we're, the definition is, um, walking in somebody else's shoes. So it's, it's understanding as though we were walking in their shoes. And I would add the caveat, which he also added, is never forgetting that we're borrowing their shoes. So we don't want to get carried away with somebody else's experience and think that we unfully understand it. We don't. We're only um, trying to understand it. And also, we are not them. Um, I love that concept of borrowing okay. their shoes. That's great. We're borrowing their shoes, right? Mm -hmm. So, so, and, and I, and remember that original definition of listening to understand. So you're, you're interviewing me, you're trying to get my message and you'll reflect my message back. You'll check that you've got my message. You'll check your own ideas against it. You'll bounce your new ideas. You mentioned Fred Rogers that came up for you. I would tell you that was sympathetically stimulated, not empathetically stimulated. And we came back to Fred Rogers. That turns out to be great. It encouraged me to talk more about empathy. So I would tell you in some ways it was an empathetic response. Um, so um, listening to understand, right? So, so we'll go back to um, Steve now. Um, Steve definitely was listening to something. Um, he's inspired to in invent the things that he sees. He sees the value of those things. Um, he's able to perceive out in the world some need that is met by the products he's inventing. There's an element of understanding there uh, and a fundamental element of listening. In, in some of the stories about him learning about fonts and calligraphy and so forth and knowing the human condition and the beauty of some of these ideas and his early childhood, um, there's, there are elements where he's a powerful listener of ideas and concepts. He isn't necessarily listening to just the agendas of the people who are in the room with him. Which totally makes sense, yeah, because, I mean, I if you think about the scope of what the man did, and the no's he came across, no, you cannot change the music industry, no, you cannot do this, but yet he still did it, is amazing. So, so he, he sees something there, right? That's part of being a visionary or, um, 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 you know, back to being an innovator. You see something others don't see, um, and, and, um, and you attempt to bring that into realization, right? So there's something about um, listening and understanding um, you know, there. Um, it, now, interpersonally, if I'm if I'm talking to somebody and I don't give them enough time to share what's going on in their world, and I don't ask them what's going on in their world, then I'm failing interpersonally to be empathetic. And I can and I can share interpersonal. You know, I I get inter and inner sometimes switched. I can. I can listen to myself effectively and I can listen to others effectively and I can listen to an industry or a market segment effectively. Those are different kinds of listening at different scales. Um, so if I can not be empathetic with myself and I can fail at self-care or I can, 
uh, fail at preparation. I can fail at managing my sleep cycle. I can fail at doing the things that I want to. I can have regrets later on in life because I never lived the dreams or goals that I wanted to to live. I can fail at my own autonomy. Those are all self empathy problems. Um, I can fail in the relationships I have with others because I never give them enough time to tell me what's going on with them or ask the basic questions. You started our dialogue today with a conversation with me before we turned on record. I would tell you, you, you know, if you wanted our conversation to succeed, you, you start by listening to me and understanding me a bit. It helps guide the conversation. In fact, Absolutely. You, you did that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we could do those things very well and then fail to understand where our customers are and what products we ought to make for them. Right. Um, um, so there are domains to empathy. Okay. Well, and, and that also kind of brings us to the why you want to care. And at least from my world, understanding this is this is kind of like the core of it's not just, you know, trying to solve a problem. It's really understanding how it affects the human being that you're trying to solve the problem for. That's where I think the real core thing when you get down to that root empathetic level now you've gotten to a different level and so why this is why i think we should care about it right um absolutely you know if if you think in marketing terms you can identify the demographic of somebody who might be interested in your product but you haven't understood their experience with it you know this the you know delighting user experience or um, psychographic or, uh, or emotional impact of something. This is a deeper level of connection and, you know, thrill from delivering your product or service. Um, you know, why do you care about it? Um, wouldn't you like to, you know, you're at the edge of a cliff. Um, wouldn't you like to peer over the edge and see where, where you're going to go if you jump before you jump? Um, so before you make a decision, before you design a product, before you respond to your wife, um, before you move to a new city, wouldn't it make sense to understand a little bit more about what the choices you're making, um, you know, what the impact of your choices are or what, or what possible other choices um, you could make might be? Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, it, is, it, is, it ties back to why do you care? Because my, you'd like to have a little more mindful impact, I- input into your decision. Right. So this is the difference between maybe type one thinking and type two thinking. The you know slower, deeper, more considered thinking is a way to be more effective. It, it, again, if you want to be more creative and have more impact and create more utility, you might want a more considered answer. And a more considered answer is a more informed answer. And one of the thing, one of the means to being informed is listening to understand. Mm-hmm. And I always, I somewhat oversimplify this concept, but. Yeah. Since I work in the B2B space with businesses and C-level people and and things of that nature, I always say the difference between selling to a consumer and selling to a B2B business is this. When you're selling to a consumer, if I come home with the wrong toilet paper, my wife makes me sleep on the couch. If I buy the wrong toilet paper for an entire organization... I lose my job. Yeah, exactly. It's it's like now I sleep on the street. I yeah, might yeah. lose my wife, my house, everything, my dog, yeah, you yeah. name it, you know, and that's the biggest difference. And that level of stress makes people move slower, right? Well, I mean, if you, if you just go to B2B selling for a second, not even marketing, um, mm-hmm. you know, what fraction of the conversation of the, of the first conversation in a B2B sales cycle do you want to spend talking versus listening? So, yes, you could take your uh, brochure there and you could tell your services and tell everything about who you are and uh, 
or you could spend 90% of your time figuring out who it is you're talking to and of the portfolio of things you might or might not get their interest with, offer them exactly the right one or two things you need. You've got to get your foot in the door and you've got to respond to something that they care about. How are you, are you going to do that with a lot more listening or a lot more talking? Um, first conversation, I think a lot more listening. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as these conversations progress, when the match is there, you offer, you know, you offer the things that are significant to them in follow-up, but you don't, you know, you consider their time and face-to-face time with somebody is an opportunity to get to know what, what their world is. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's all about the questions that you ask. You know, I think that's really kind of the key and, you know, you can, systematize the questions, but I think that empathy, you know, if you're systemizing questions, you're not really dealing from an empathetic level. And it's really getting to understand somebody at a deeper sense of what is their, their core, you know, what makes them tick, right? You walk into somebody's office, you look around the office and you see who you're with. Um, I, when I, when I, I, I've done a bunch of interviewing, you know, I've hired a whole bunch of people in my life. Um, I like to walk them out to their car and take a look at, you know, what's the inside of their car look like? Um, uh, yeah. Know, if, yeah. Um, if they've got, if they got French fries laying all over the back seat, you know, like, mm, if there's no back that. seat because it's been filled with uh, candy, candy wrappers, that's interesting. Mm. Um, you know, you make, it may or may not be a good match. You know, if you're, if you're, if we're working for Mars candy, it might be a good match. Um, um, but you know, it's 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 a piece of understanding who you're dealing with, and then having a conversation that gets through the layers of um, um, uh, of, of protocol to real you know deeper meaning and understanding. Um, mm-hmm. If you're trying to have impact, you know, real impact in what you're selling, you need to get to a level of honesty. So one one of the other reasons why you care about empathy is if you want honest interaction with people. Um, you need to demonstrate a level of empathy for their situation that they're willing to honestly share what's going on. If mm-hmm. you demonstrate no empathy for their situation, they're not going to tell you. Why do kids lie to parents? Because they don't think their parents are going to listen to them or they think they're going to get punished when they tell you what's going on. Mm-hmm. So they give you the amount of information that they think is enough to get by. And it's not, it's, you know, it, it's, it's equally honest as you are equally able to empathize with them. Um, so if you want a trusted business development relationship or B2B relationship with a client, you need to be able to understand that your product sucks and why, and they need to feel comfortable telling you why your product sucks. That's the conversation you need to have with them. Or, you know, you know, David, these 10 things you sell me are all fine and dandy. This is the one thing that I really like from your competitor. Please, can you you know, respond to my last 27 emails about including that feature in your product, not just I'm there to sell you my stuff. I'm actually there to engage with you and know what I care about. Mm-hmm. So, you know, your B2B relationship is just like customer service is your primary clue to what to, to improving your product. Your, your B2B engagement is your primary clue to what's good or bad about your product line and whether this customer belongs to the market segment you can serve or not. If you know, you may not be able to serve them. That's important to know. Stop serving them. Go serve the one you can. Um, or you might want to change the offering you have to serve them. Um, and that requires being able to listen to them. And then you'll get an honest response. And that's another reason why you care, right? Empathy right. drives up honesty. And, and, and those two things together, I would describe back in psychological terms, that's closeness. Um, 
You want to have an intimate relationship with someone, you'll have to be empathetic and you'll have to be honest. Um, and um, sometimes honesty is painful. And um, sometimes it's very hard to be empathetic because you're distracted by other things. Right. Um, and this, this could go way deeper into mindset and things of that nature. But so we've defined what empathy is. We've defined why you want to care. And, and, and remember, you're driving there because you want to make you want to make the best possible decisions for where you're at, right? You want to make a decision that's informed by real, honest information, and 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 so I I, I jumped in on you. Go for go for your next question. Yeah. No, that's fine. And um, so the so the next piece is what is the outcome? What when you're empathetic, what is the result that maybe most people wouldn't see if they don't do it? How do you determine? Okay, this empathy has actually had an effect. It's done something good versus. You know, why do I want to go down that road when my script has worked on everybody else? Oh, I, I'm, I'm a busy sales guy. I'm there to figure out out of the 100 calls I do, the three that are going to be power customers and drive my, um, hit my numbers. Mm -hmm. And those guys are going to have extraordinary, or, and I'm done. And, and frankly, I've got a lot of conversations to do before I find that guy. I just don't have time. Um, well, you know, you, you can be efficient in your conversation, but listening to understand is not, you know, is not spending a long time doing that if it's not a match. You can listen to understand and, and be respectful and move on. So you, you're going to have to manage uh, time boundaries. Um, wh what does it do for you? It allows you to be in a more collaborative world where you don't have to do all the work yourself. Is, you know, I, I would tell you that's the, that's the net end of this level of engagement. Um, and I, I don't know if I did a, a weird jump on you. Did you? No, follow? no, you, no, yeah. you did. You did. Yeah. Um, you definitely talked about. I mean, the the, um, you know, the level of engagement is important. But how does that get us to the end goal of solving their problem, and us providing a better opportunity to make that happen? Right. So you, you you're getting better information, right? Mm -hmm. um, if you actually are somewhat honest about your world and vulnerable about your world, they'll tell you um, whether there's a fit there or not. They'll, they'll solve your own attention problem as well. Um, so if you tell them the feature they've been asking for is not a feature you're ever going to give them uh, or won't be able to, um, um, they'll help you move on to clients or find clients for you That'll where the match is there. You know, it doesn't work for them, but they're an opportunity to find others, leverage them as a as a network to find your other customers. So again, I'm, I'm a subscriber of more openness, more understanding, and as a result of more collaboration. So if you don't take your B2B customers as adversaries, but rather as collaborators, they're, you know, they're genuinely looking for answers to their problems. You may, if you're, if you're genuine and honest about which ones you have solutions to and help them with those solutions, you know, they're going to become collaborators and tell you whether you're not an answer in, um, and they're going to help you find places where your solution is a good solution and they'll be champions of them. Um, you focus on the things you're good at. Um, so generally, why do you care about it all? Because now you have a partner, you don't have a customer. And um, I think that um, I think the point that you bring up is by listening, you start to determine where those boundaries are. I mean, one of the things in my business is I know as I move forward in it, when a client is not going to be a good fit in the long run, even though they come across as somebody who um, 
you know, you you get the empathy from them. You understand. You're unlayering. You're unlayering that match problem, and you're right. discovering that you're migrating from actually being a match. Right. Mm -hmm. So we come back to this: How do you make a different? You know, how do you be intrinsically creative? You're going to do something novel that has meaning and usefulness. Well, how do you know if you're if you're in the marketing world, you're trying to solve the matching problem, which is there's supply and demand out there, and the world is crazy and complex. Those rare things that do match, that's when you're going to serve the need. Um, mm -hmm. um, if you discover, you know, the more authentic and more rapidly you can get to whether there's a genuine match there or the deeper that understanding is, the more you have a chance to focus on solving, solving the problems for the people you actually can solve the problems for right. or move on, right? Mm -hmm. You've created efficiency. And there's, I'll give you a core example of something like this and, and the, you know, the empathy of listening to somebody. So, you know, I've been working with a particular salesperson who's a sales manager and he wants to do something. And he keeps saying, yeah, we're going to do it, we're going to do it. But I know that there's not buy-in from the rest of the team. So you can kind of get the sense of the hesitation of what's going on. He's not, he's not coming in and absolutely saying, hey, you know, this is not going to work. He's saying, I want to do this. But you also get the sense of there's something that is holding him back. And it's, it's in the structure of the business. It's not in the solution that you're providing. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Well, I, well, let's go back to sales cycle again. Let's say we have a sales organization that's deeply measured based on their performance. So they're responsible for outcomes, right? Or mm -hmm. they're, they're, and uh, they don't control all the circumstances that are in. They don't control the size of the category or the quality of the leads that they're given by whatever, you know, whatever marketing handed them. And, um, and so there's an out of their control, arbitrary nature of the work they do. Is, is it useful to be honest in that circumstance? Yeah, you can be honest with yourself. This is, this is what I can provide. This is who I can work with. This is who I'm looking for. Now, now when you talk to a customer in your limited world where it's going to be very hard to perform, you're very candid with the customer about what you have a solution for and you move on. Yeah, that's that's really the bottom line is is the empathy is going to get you to the point where you can make a good decision on whether you're a good fit for them and they're a good fit for you. And I think that's really cool. Yeah, you know, the example I gave you before is I um, most of the work I've done in my life is like I'm a you know, if I was a hardware store, I was a metric stainless steel exotic material nuts and bolts store. Uh, mm -hmm. And not everybody needed that kind of performance out of nuts and bolts, assuming, you know, make the analogy, I'm a hardware store. But when somebody came in who had an airplane that was made in Switzerland um, and they needed that part, I'm, I was going to have it and it was going to work for them. And we had the right, you know, that's great. And everybody else, I'm going to point them down the block to the next hardware store, just to, but they're going to remember who I am and when they need those parts. And anybody who they ever bump into who knows that I'm the stainless steel metric guy, they're going to find me. Um, and, you know, that's just the nature of the universe. And and I'm otherwise not going to try to sell them something I don't have. I love that analogy. I think it's it's spot on. And I think that really summarizes the whole empathy thing very well. Yeah. David, this has been amazing. Great stuff. If people wanted to learn more about you and what you do, what's the best way for them to find you or get a hold of you? Um, you I'm, I'm pretty easy to find on LinkedIn. Um, if if you if davidnayer.com will point to my LinkedIn profile, 
I'm pretty good about reading um, messages that come in, you know, be honest about who you are and what you're looking for. And I'll give you a response. Also, you get a chance to look through the full diversity of the things I'm working on. So, David, this has been fantastic. I want to let you know, man, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. And thank you for your time and coming on and dropping some sizzling hot bacon knowledge bombs on my peeps. All right. I definitely look forward to having you back on again and kind of digging deep into some of these subjects, man. So thanks so much. Awesome. And, and I'm a vegetarian, so good luck with your bacon. Thank you for letting us sprinkle some bacon bits into your brains. Want some more? Learn more about this podcast and our guest experts at baconpodcast.com. Have questions? Send them to askbrian at baconpodcast.com. Until next time, keep sizzling. And remember, it's all about the bacon.